Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 14. 2 Samuel chapter 14 for our study this morning. God's into healing relationships. Over time, we're all going to experience a break in relationship, a fracture in relationship. And what does it mean for there to be restoration? If you remember, David is in the middle of that. Absalom has killed his brother Ammon because Ammon had raped his sister. David doesn't deal with any of this. He gets angry. He's grieved, but he doesn't address it. So because of it, we find Absalom going to a different city. He's there for three years. There's no contact between David and Absalom. And this chapter is an attempt at restoration. And we'll find what are the requirements for restoration. I'm going to give you four things this morning from our text that restoration is not. I think when we look at this chapter between David and Absalom, we find not true, genuine restoration. It's an attempt. So we're going to see four things that restoration is not. Then we'll conclude with one thing that restoration is. So let's pray. Let's ask that God would do work in relationships this morning. Father, we thank you that you care about relationship, that you've reconciled us unto yourself, that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. Holy Spirit, we recognize you're our helper, you're our teacher. You lead us and guide us into truth. So we welcome you here. Would you fill us with your spirit? Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Please minimize distractions. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. Joab's the general. He's the right-hand man. He's watching David over this period of time, and he sees that David's heart is troubled. So he takes it upon himself to try to mend this relationship. It's very difficult to be kind of the third person in the midst of a fractured relationship. Maybe it's a a father and son like David and Absalom, and you're watching this take place, and your heart aches, and you want to see them reconcile. Maybe it's your parents, and they're going through a difficulty in, in their marriage. So we understand Joab's heart, but the way that he goes about it is wrong. The way that he tries to attempt to bring about that restoration isn't effective, and we'll see why in verse 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who's been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put words in her mouth. Remember when David was confronted by Nathan? Nathan approached him with a story. And that story ultimately convicted David. Well, Joab's going to try the same thing. He's going to have this woman make up this story. She's going to be acting. And hopefully that will then get David's attention and give him the motivation to want to reconcile with Absalom. The only problem is, is Joab leaves out truth. And ultimately, this is manipulation. So here's the first thing that restoration is not. Restoration is not manipulation. It's not manipulation. Because Joab, he doesn't ever address the issue. He's just saying, I want everybody to get along. And sometimes that can be us as well. I can find myself falling into this. This may surprise you, but I like to get along with people. It's kind of who I am by nature. I just enjoy getting along with people. 
I like to get along with people. I like people that I'm close to to get along. And sometimes just the tension and the heartbreak of people not getting along, it's easy for me to say, hey, let's not really talk about the issues. Let's not talk about what's went wrong. Let's just try to find a way for everybody to get along. And so we don't have to deal with this awkward tension any longer. The only problem with that is Absalom's got some real sin issues in his heart. And those sin issues aren't being confronted. So what's going to happen is there isn't going to be a healing in a fractured relationship. You might be causing great damage in relationships that you really care about because you keep using backdoor attempts to try to get people to reconcile. This is a backdoor attempt. All right, I'm going to have this lady come up with this story and hopefully this is going to work out. You know, this is kind of like a family member that knows that there's odds with another family member and says, okay, I'm just going to have them all over for dinner, but I'm not going to tell the other one that they're coming over for dinner. And then somehow this is going to result in them getting along. Does it usually work that way? Everybody shows up and like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Oh, Aunt Susie set this up, right? Or, or whoever in the family that, that did that. So restoration is not manipulation. We can't just manipulate it. So does that mean we don't address two people that are at odds with one another? No, we do. Jesus told us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Well, but we address them in truth. We take the time to pray about it. We get into God's word. We speak to them from God's word and say, God wants to bring healing in the relationship. I may be wrong, but from an outside perspective, here's what I think needs to be dealt with. What if Joab would have went to David and said, man, I know your heart's grieving. You don't have relationship with your son, but you've never dealt with it. You're the king. I know you're dad, but you're also king, and you've never brought justice to this vengeful murder that he did to his brother. Verse 4, And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. The king said to her, What troubles you? If you felt like your affairs were not being dealt by the local leaders, you'd bring it to the king. And she answered, Indeed, I'm a widow. My husband's dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them. But the one struck the other and killed him. Understandable, unfortunate, but you've got two brothers that are fighting. There was no intent for murder, but one struck the other and he ended up dying. Is this Absalom's story? Was he just kind of fighting with Ammon out in the field and hit his brother too hard and his brother died? No, Absalom planned it out for two years. And then finally he killed his brother. So we find that this situations are different. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Now, and this woman should get the best actress award. She's really laying it on here. I'm a widow. My husband's died. Remember, none of this is true. Joab put these words in her mouth. This is the backdoor attempt. My sons, they were fighting. One son killed the other son. Now they want justice upon the son who did the killing. And my family's name's going to be wiped out forever. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give you orders concerning you. David says, go back home. 
I'll get back to you on this. Give me some time to think about this. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. She knows if David pardons her son that he could be guilty for doing so. So she's saying, well, we'll let the guilt be upon me. So the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall not touch you anymore. David's emotions are getting wrapped up in this. He says, go ahead and go home. Let me think about it. She continues to talk and he gets more and more entrapped as he goes. Then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your head shall fall to the ground. Now he gives a guarantee. He hasn't had time to think about it, time to pray about it, get godly counsel. And he says, look, your son's going to be fine. I'm going to protect his life. Alan Redpath said this. He said, he guaranteed, David guaranteed safety at the expense of justice. And immediately, the far-sighted woman captured him in her trap. How is David's pardoning here different from how Jesus pardons us? So Jesus reconciles us unto himself, but how does he do it? Is God's forgiveness just, well, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. I know that their intention was, was right. Not at all. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. He was punished for our sin so that God then could provide forgiveness for us when we respond in faith. It's kind of like this. You've got some bills because you had to go to the hospital. Your health insurance didn't kick in like you thought it would. Big surprise, huh? It's hard, hard to really call it health insurance anymore. So now you've got this bill from the hospital. Do you think that they're just going to say, hey, it's the year of Jubilee. You're the 50th caller. It's the week of Jubilee. You don't have to pay today. I understand there's going to be difficulty. Those medical bills, they're about justice, aren't they? They need to, they need to get paid. But if one of your friends or your family member called in and paid for it, and then you followed up with that bill, and they said, you know what? Someone called anonymously, and it's paid in full. That's different, isn't it? The requirement has been met. See, here the requirement has not been met. Justice has not been met, but David's saying, sure, this son can be pardoned. In verse 12, therefore the woman said, please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. He should have said no. He should have said, okay, that's enough. But instead, he says, say on. So the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as the one who is guilty and that the king doesn't bring his banished one home again. Now she's speaking of Absalom. She's like, you're guilty, David. You have your own son that's been banished. Why don't you bring him back home? But she continues to play the part. In verse 14, for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God doesn't take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. This woman's speaking out of context. She's taking the character of God, which is true, that God restores banished people, that he, he pardons, but then she applies it in the wrong context. Does God bring back 
banished people? Does he provide restoration? Absolutely, but he always does it through justice. It's where grace and mercy and justice all meet together and embrace. And this is the absence of justice. This is pardoning without justice. In verse 15, now therefore I've come to speak of this thing to my Lord the King, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of the maidservant. Now she's back to her story, her situation. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my Lord the king will now be comforting. For as an angel of God, so is my Lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord, your God, be with you. We'll just throw on some flattery with this. David, you're like the angel of God. May God give you discerning in all of these things. If someone's overly flattering you, there's a genuine compliment, but then there's that compliment that's like way up here. You need to be careful. You need to look into their eyes and go, okay, what do you really want? What are you really trying to do here? That's exactly what David does. And the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask. And the woman said, please let my lord, the king, speak. David says, now it's my turn to ask the question. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? David smelled the skunk. It's like, this sure sounds a lot like Joab's words. He knows how Joab feels. It's his right-hand man. Joab wants to see Absalom and David's relationship restored. Goes on, and the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. I'm glad she's honest at this point. I'm glad she's like, Okay, you found me out. This is all a show. Joab put me up to this. This is why, in verse 20, to bring about this change of affairs, for the servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know anything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right, I've granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. It's like Joab's hiding in the room. Once it gets to this point, here comes Joab. And what does David do? He caves. He says, all right, go get Absalom. Go ahead and bring him on back without ever dealing with Absalom's sin. And we'll see the result of this. We'll see the fruit of this in verse 22. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I've found favor in your sight, my lord, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Gezer and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. In verse 24, And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. Second thing that restoration is not. It is not merely being in the same proximity. These guys are now in the same city, in Jerusalem, probably the same neighborhood. King's palace, his son's house, close proximity, but it's not restoration. And a lot of times, I believe we think it is. If we go about restoring a relationship this way, if we don't go about it God's way, we go, well, well at least now we're in the same house. Well, 
at least now we're talking to one another. Well, at least now we're in the same proximity. But once again, we'll find the issues haven't been dealt with, so there's not a true healing of a relationship. Sometimes this happens between a husband and a wife. There's fractures. There's sin. There's hurt feelings. There's, there's bitterness, and it's never dealt with. It's never talked about. And before time, they become roommates. They're living under the same roof. They can go through a whole entire week and only say five words to each other. But they're thinking, hey, we're all okay with each other because we're in the same proximity. Now, I've got to say, that's better than divorce. It is, absolutely. But it's not God's best for your marriage, amen? It's not what God, God would want. He would want to go deeper. He would want to bring healing. He would want things to be talked about. Sin to be confessed and repented of and forgiveness and true restoration to take place. Sometimes this happens with parents and children. Adult children, children inside of the home, there's sin, there's fractured relationships, things aren't dealt with. And before you know it, they're in the same proximity, but there's no relationship. They're face-to-face, but they're not face-to-face. Sometimes it happens with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a fracture in relationship. Isn't that a bummer? But it happens, doesn't it? We sin. We sin against each other. We hurt one another. There's, there's a falling out. But you all go to the same church. All go to Rocky Mountain Calvary. And you once hung out together, but now when you come to the nine o'clock service, you're in the same proximity, but there isn't re- restoration. But it's easy for the mind to go, hey, we're all in the same room. It's all good. We're all in the same church. It's, it's all good. And God's knowing, no, it's not good. And think about, once again, how we're reconciled unto God. Just being in proximity of God, does that mean you have a relationship with God? I know that by experience. I grew up in a Christian home, grew up going to services like this, went to a Christian school. I was in proximity of Jesus, let me tell you. And it was a blessing. But I didn't know Jesus. And I didn't see it as a blessing at the time. It took me coming to Christ in truth. It took me coming to Christ with with my heart. So don't buy into that, that just being in proximity means that there's relationship and there's restoration. Verse 25, now in all of Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. That is quite a compliment. From the bottom of his foot to the top of his head, he was handsome. I mean, his big toe was handsome. It was perfect. I mean, who has attractive feet? But apparently, Absalom did. His nose was attractive. His eyebrows were perfect. I mean, he was just good looking. So people praised him. That's what what the Bible tells us. The same mistake that Israel made with Saul. Why did they like Saul as a king? Because of his outward appearance. Because he was tall. He was taller than than anyone else. He was tall, dark, and handsome. So Israel said, I'm going to follow Saul. Read ahead. Next week, we'll see that Absalom commits treason against his dad. Attempts to take the kingdom away from his dad. People followed him. He had a platform in the community because of his good looks. David wasn't hanging out with Absalom, but Absalom was hanging out with the people. He was working the system, working the crowd, building rapport. He knew exactly where he was going with all of this. 
And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standards. This is about five and a half pounds. So you can picture Absalom going through Jerusalem. You know, who weighs their hair? Come on, really. You go get a haircut because it's so heavy, you know, it's so, so long, it's time for a haircut. Let me, let me sweep that up. Ooh, this is some nice hair. Let me put it right here on the, on the, on the scale. I mean, who does that? I picture Absalom like selling hair care products, like, <laughs> suavecito for men, you know. Does this appear to be the kind of man that's broken over his sin that wants a relationship with his father? No, not at all. This is someone who's prideful, that's arrogant, that hasn't yet seen the error of their own ways. And of course that's going to result in the fracturing of relationships. In verse 27, To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Does Tamar ring a bell? That was Absalom's sister who was raped. He's saying, I want my sister to be remembered, as he should. Saying, don't forget what happened to my sister. She was innocent in this. A lot of the difficulty that we find in these chapters, unfortunately, is the lack of leadership from David and his family. If he would have dealt with the rape when it happened, Absalom may not have killed Ammon. If he would have dealt with Absalom in, in a godly way, Absalom may not have committed treason. In verse 28, And Absalom dwelt two years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Now we're up to five years. Absalom committed the murder of his brother. David and Absalom have not seen each other for five years. They've been able to live in close proximity, but not see each other. They've been able to avoid one another. This is the third thing that restoration is not. Restoration is not guaranteed with time. In our minds, once again, a lot of times we think, well, time is going to make this better. This relationship's fractured by sin, by difficulty, by hurt that's happened. But over time, it's going to get better. Over time, we're not just going to be live-in roommates. Over time, the silence is going to be broken with my son. Over time, I'm going to have that relationship with my dad, my, that relationship with, with my mom. David and Absalom have time. They've got five years. They're going to continue to have more time. It's going to continue to get worse and continue to get worse and continue to get worse. It's like mold in a home. Does mold get better with time? It gets worse with time. You know how mold gets better? Some bleach, some kills all, maybe a professional company, maybe pulling out some drywall, putting in some new drywall. It doesn't just magically get better. Sometimes, with time, relationships get better because people have broken hearts. Two people's hearts get broken. They get sensitive to the Lord. They own their sin. They talk about it. There's forgiveness and restoration. Sometimes we run out of time. People go to their graves with a broken relationship that's really dear to them. Why did the relationship break? Why did it fracture? One of the things here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, we do a lot of memorial services. We're doing one this afternoon. When they all head home, there'll be 
memorial service here in the sanctuary. I've watched people come up to this podium and weep because they say, you know what? Dad went to the grave and we had a broken relationship. We haven't talked for, for 20 years. But I've also heard people get up and say, you know what? We had a fracture in our relationship and it was way too long. But three months ago, three years ago, we got things right and I'm so glad we did. You're here, there's a broken relationship. It's been a long time. Could God bring healing? Yes, he could. But don't buy into the lie that says time's going to heal it. Verse 29, therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. Absalom's sick of this. He's like, I'm ready to see the king. So he asks for Joab. Hopefully Joab can get him an appointment with his dad. But he wouldn't come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he wouldn't come. So Joab doesn't respond to these two requests. So he said to his servants, see Joab's field is near mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. This is a way to get people's attention. This is a way to get people to call you back. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, why have you set my field on fire? Okay, you got my attention now. Why did you set my field on fire? Contrast Absalom's actions with the prodigal. Contrast how Absalom's coming back to his father compared to the prodigal coming back. You may be saying, who is the prodigal? It's a story that Jesus told. Two brothers, an older and a younger. And the younger says, I'm sick of this. I want my inheritance now. Give me my money that I am eventually going to get when you die. Takes all the money, goes and squanders it in sin to the point where he's living in a pigsty. We had some relatives in North Dakota when I was growing up that were pig farmers. Nasty. Pigs are nasty. If you've, so he's living in a pigsty, literally. He feeds pigs. Like, it's better to be a servant in my father's house. He comes back to his father in brokenness and humility, and there's restoration. How's Absalom coming back? He's burning people's fields. He's like, if you won't talk to me, I'm going to make you talk to me. Get your attention. Completely different. In verse 32, And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here, so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Gezer? It'd be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. What Absalom should have been saying is there is iniquity in me. I vengefully killed my brother instead of allowing justice to take place. Justice needed to happen upon Ammon for what he did. But Absalom took things into his own hands. But instead, you can hear the arrogance inside of him. He's saying, well, if there's any sin in me, just kill me. So now there's this meeting between Absalom and David. Five years, they haven't seen each other. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. Looks great, right? Joab's back there going, yeah, awesome. These guys are restored. Not so great. Here's the fourth thing restoration is not. It's not feigned affection. 
It's not fake affection. It's not, let's just kiss and make up without truth and, and repentance. When Absalom bows on the ground, does he mean it? It seems like humility. His body is postured in, in humility, but his heart's in defiance. He hates his dad. He can't wait for the opportunity to take his dad's throne, to destroy his dad completely, to kill his dad if he has the chance and the opportunity to do it. This isn't real. This isn't restoration. This is just outward motions. Do you think David's kiss on the cheek? Do you think David's at the place where he's like, oh man, we're back in fellowship together. We're back in right in relationship. No, I don't think so. This is minimal. This is just to break the tension. This is just to get Joab off their back. They're grieved that they've had five years apart, but they haven't gone about it the way that God would instruct us to. So how do we seek restoration inside of a relationship? If this is what not to do, what are we supposed to do? So restoration is this. Restoration is found in truth and repentance. Does this scripture give us another family that was fractured because of sin? And did they end with true restoration? By the way, have you noticed that the families in the Bible are really messed up? From the very beginning, the first set of brothers, homicide, right? You read through Genesis, every family's all messed up because family's difficult. Without Christ, family's extremely difficult. We need Christ in the midst of those family relationships. There is a family in Scripture that ends with restoration. It's Joseph. Joseph has 10 older brothers. Can you imagine? He's the 11th son. The problem in this family is Jacob has multiple wives. And the first 10 boys are born of Leah. And Leah is not the favored wife. Rachel is, but Rachel's barren. She can't have kids. God opens up Rachel's womb. So the first 10 are from Leah and Leah's concubine. Then Rachel's womb is opened up and Joseph is born. Joseph is immediately the loved boy. Talk about the golden boy. Dave, or excuse me, Jacob lets everybody know this. He gives Joseph a coat of many colors. The rest of the sons, they're Levi's and white t-shirts. That's all they get. Nobody had, nobody had a coat of many colors except for, for Joseph. On top of that, Joseph doesn't do the same amount of work as the other brothers do. They're out working with all the cattle, and Joseph's home's drinking lattes with Jacob. <laughs> hanging out, right? That'd make you really mad. If one of your siblings didn't have to contribute the same amount of work, it's favoritism. Multiply it even more. Jacob says to Joseph, why don't you go out in the field and check on your brother's work? Oh, now the little brother's the supervisor. So the 10 brothers, they see Joseph walking towards them. They say, let's kill him. This is our opportunity. We're going to kill him right now. One speaks up, one brother speaks up and says, no, let's sell him as a slave. Here comes the slave traders from Egypt, and we'll just send him off to, to Egypt as a slave. With brothers like that, who needs friends? You know what I'm saying? It's like, these are his brothers, and they sell him as a slave. He's a young man, he shows up in Egypt, he's a man of integrity, he's a man who walks with God from a young age. Now he's a slave in Potiphar's house, but he serves faithfully. God allows him 
to earn trust where he's in charge of all of Potiphar's affairs. Potiphar's wife has eyes for, for Joseph, starts to try to seduce him, say, hey, come lie with me, come have, have sex with me. Joseph refuses, he gets falsely accused. Sometimes your integrity is going to result in persecution. He's thrown into prison. Time goes by. He continues to walk with the Lord. He's given responsibility in prison as a prisoner. Then comes the butler and the baker from Pharaoh's house. Almost sounds like a Disney movie, doesn't it? Here comes the butler and the baker. There was a conspiracy. Someone was trying to kill the Pharaoh. These two men have dreams. Joseph interprets the dreams through the Lord. He says, look, the baker's going to be executed. The butler is going to be restored to his position. That's exactly what happens. As the butler's leaving, he says, remember me. Remember me when you are in Pharaoh's house. Put in a good word for me. He forgets two more years go by. Then Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. No one can make sense of it. Pharaoh can't let it go. The butler says, I remember. Someone interpreted my dream when I was in prison. Pharaoh says, go get him. Scripture tells us Joseph had to shave. The Egyptians always in history, you see them clean shaven. Shaves, new digs, new clothes, gets out of his prison clothes. Pharaoh shares the dream. Joseph says, this is what it means. There's going to be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. In Joseph's wisdom, he knows how to apply the truth. What do you do with this information? Well, you should save like crazy for those seven years. So you're prepared for the time of famine. You have storehouses and fill up all the stuff in the, in the storehouses. Pharaoh's looking at this man, Joseph, where could I get someone that would accomplish that? You do it. You're going to be second in command of all of Egypt. He goes from slave to prisoner to second in command of all of Egypt. He gets some visitors. Who do you think it is? It's his ten brothers. They don't have any food. The famine's also in Israel. They travel to Egypt. They don't recognize Joseph. Joseph recognizes them. Joseph doesn't, at that moment, restore relationship. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do what David does. He doesn't settle for fake, feigned affection. Instead, he tests them. Now, please hear this. I think this is really important. If you miss this, I think you could err in this truth. There is a difference between forgiveness and restoration. This really helped me out in relationships when I understood it. God requires us to forgive. You have a hard time convincing God that you don't need to forgive somebody. Why? Because he forgave you. So he's like, if you're going to experience my forgiveness, Eric, you need to share it with others. Joseph in his heart had forgiven his brothers. How do we know that? From his actions. It's not that he didn't want to be in relationship with his brothers, but he knew in order for them to have a healthy relationship, there had to be change in his brothers if he was going to really be restored to him. So here's the test. He says, guys, you're spies. He wasn't just trying to get them back. He's wanting to see where their hearts were at. No, no, we're not spies. Well, one of you has to stay in Egypt under arrest, while the other of you go home, and when you come back the second time, you need to bring Benjamin, the 12th son who was born, also born of Rachel. See the test? If they still had it out, for Rachel's kids, which Joseph was, they weren't. They were Leah's kids. 
then they would knock off Benjamin. This would be the opportunity to kill Benjamin. Also, he put the money in their sacks, the money that they were going to pay for the grain. So here they come, second trip. They had to come back. They ran out of food. They were going to die. Who did they bring? Benjamin. He's safe and sound. Also, they bring the money. They said, here you go. Someone put this back in our bags. That shows integrity. If you don't have integrity, you're like, sweet. I paid all this money for the food, and they gave it back to me. Praise the Lord, you know. There's another test. This time, he sends them on their way, but he takes a silver cup and puts it into Benjamin's bag, plants it there. Sends the soldiers, says, look for this silver cup. These guys stole my silver cup. Goes through the bag, and to the surprise of the brothers, it's in the bag of Benjamin. If they hadn't changed, this is the perfect opportunity to get rid of Benjamin. It doesn't even come by their own hand. They're like, great. Another little mongrel out of here. But instead, Judah, he speaks up and he articulates for the group of brothers that they understood their sin and that they had changed. And at this point, Joseph begins to weep. And it's real. And he gives his heart to his brothers. And he embraces his brothers. And I'm sure that his brothers were weeping. You see the difference? That's not Absalom and David. Because it's not found in truth. And it's not found in repentance. It's real. So what do we do with this text? What do we do with this chapter? A few things for us to consider. Is doing nothing is not an option when it comes to broken relationships. Now it takes two It took the brothers and it took Joseph. But doing nothing isn't going to accomplish change. It's not going to accomplish the restoration that we desire. If we've wronged someone, we just can't manipulate our way back in. You may be a master at this. It's not that you've actually been broken over what you've done wrong. You've just been so good at pressuring them, so good at not giving them another option, You'll burn their field if you have to, but you'll force your way back into their life. But I guarantee if you do that, you will not have real relationship with that person. They'll just go, man, I got manipulated again. They got really angry again. They made me feel really bad again. We can't manipulate our way back into relationships. We need to be broken over our sin, repent, and pursue them in humility. That's what the brothers did. They got to a place where they realized what they had done wrong. It takes this. We have to stop and realize, am I the Absalom in the story? And I'm, am I the one that's caused the fracture? And if so, what do I do? I need to get right with God. I need to get right with that person. And say something like this. I am so sorry that I sinned against God and I sinned against you. And I know that I caused this hurt in your life. And I would love the opportunity to try to make it right. It's really hard to reject that when someone comes to you in that way. It's really hard to not weep like Joseph and say, yeah, I forgive you. Absolutely, I forgive you. And then it's real. It's real restoration. You might find yourself going from roommates to friends again and even lovers inside of your marriage. If you stop and you realize, man, This is what I've done wrong. This is what I've contributed to the frostiness. 
Would you forgive me? A lot of times when a conversation like that is initiated, then the other person stops and thinks and goes, you know, I've kind of been a jerk too. I, I've, I've contributed to this. Maybe the fracture is with the child, an adult child, a child in the home. What have I done to contribute to the brokenness? Would you please forgive me? And then that child might reciprocate and go, oh, man, would you forgive me? And then all of a sudden, there's this beautiful healing that takes place. You, another thing that we see from this text is don't just kiss and make up. It's so tempting, isn't it? For the moment, it was easier for Absalom and David. They probably went home that day and go, well, this is better than not seeing each other. But there was poison in Absalom's heart. There was cancer in Absalom's heart. It's going to lead to the, to the next chapter of, of treason. So this is what I believe that God would speak to us in this area of relationships. Is have those difficult conversations with humility, with brokenness, with truth. Because in the midst of that, it provides the opportunity for the healing of a relationship. Does it always happen? No. Because it takes two people to heal a relationship. It took Joseph and his brothers to heal a relationship. But God does give us a biblical path instead of the path that we see in 2 Samuel 14. So as we close, let's pray. Let's pray that God would heal relationships. Father, we thank you that you're committed to relationships. You're committed to relationship with us. I know that this is painful, that there are broken relationships in very dear places, parents with kids, husbands and wives, good friends, mentors. And a lot of times we feel like there's no hope. There's no way that a relationship could be restored. But God, oftentimes you heal and restore in such a way that it was, it's better than before it was broken. So would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us to apply your word, would you help us to have those conversations, to deal with those things, to own sin where we've fallen short, own where we've hurt people, and may we be able to extend forgiveness. May you rebuild what's been broken down. And pray for those that don't know you, that haven't yet come to that place of seeing their need. May they be like the prodigal. May they be like that one who comes in brokenness and humility and receive your grace and forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.